I live in a state where Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday, where Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. We do not have Martin Luther King Day in Alabama. We have Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, Here and Now!, Counterspin!, and The Laura Flanders Show. In our society, in a society, let's just put this in general terms, in a society where a certain group of people have been able to dominate. They set up what the definition of merit is. You cannot be superior to one, uh, one person cannot be superior to another person in a vacuum. Right? I mean, I cannot say I am superior to Matt in a vacuum. I can say I am taller than Matt. And I've now set up what the measure is, right? We're going to measure who is better based upon height, or we're going to measure who is better based upon weight. And it could be you weigh more, you're better. If you weigh less, you know, you're a sumo wrestler, you're, you're doing better, you're in better shape if you're bigger. In the context of our society, White males have set up the entire definition of meritocracy. So to say that people rise based upon their merit is not even enough because if you, if you design the meritocracy based upon what you happen to be best at, then the entire system is going to produce the desired results. You no longer even have to keep one segment of the population artificially subjugated because the system that you have developed will allow your traits on average to provide the most rewards in society. So this is what this guy does not understand. I can argue that women are genetically superior but the word superior means nothing. They're superior in what way? I mean, if, if you do not set up what the definition of better is, like what is, what are we measuring it? It doesn't matter. And the fact is, is that whenever we talk about that, but anybody being better, we're still doing it in the context of a society that has been set up by white males. So any skill sets, any perceptions of time and of success and are a function of, in some way, what white males gravitate towards. So they own the meritocracy. They own uh, the, the, and that's what I think, you know, fundamentally you can't understand. I mean, it's not a question of, feeling uh, guilty that you're a white male, but it is understanding that you have a fundamental advantage, be even if you can't see it, because the system that we live in has been set up by people who wanted to advantage themselves, and they also happen to be white male. 
And that's not to say that every white male is going to succeed in that system. But it's going to mean that statistically speaking, they have a much better chance. And also the reason that they don't succeed isn't because it has anything to do with their whiteness. The reason they don't succeed, it doesn't have anything to do. For no, those, on the for contrary, those white males, the idea that um, you don't succeed because you're a white male is ludicrous. Yes, exactly. The right. reason why you're in the running <laughs> is because you're a white male. Let's be Our guest is Eric Foner, author of Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. Um, he is the DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University, specializing in the Civil War. Uh, his book, The Fiery Trial, um, the book, The Fiery Trial, won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, can you tell us about one—read a section from yes. your book. Well, this is about uh, Henry Brown, who, as you'll see in a minute, becomes known as Henry Box Brown. Um, equally dramatic was the tale of Henry Box Brown, a skilled tobacco processor in Richmond, whose wife and children, the property of a different owner, was suddenly sold to a Methodist minister in North Carolina. With his family gone, Brown devised a plan to have, him shipped, have himself shipped north in a crate, sort of like UPS or whatever it was back then. In March 1849, Samuel Redboot Smith, a Massachusetts-born white shoemaker, packed Brown into a rectangular box, even too small for a coffin. It measured only three feet long and dispatched him by rail and steamboat to Philadelphia. Upon Brown's arrival, after a trip of more than 250 miles that took nearly 24 hours, uh, Miller McKim, an abolitionist, tapped on the crate, asking, All right? All right, sir, came the reply. The lid was removed and out stepped Brown, quote, with a face radiant with joy. Good morning, gentlemen, he exclaimed and launched into a hymn of praise. And then Brown is quickly sent to New York and then to Massachusetts. But, you know, you could not be safe in the North, even after you escape, because there were slave catchers around. So Brown eventually goes to England, where he spends the 1850s, and he becomes a sort of anti-slavery lecturer. But, of course, his exploit makes him a very celebrated figure. Well, you argue in your book that the um, that the Underground Railroad was not uh, merely a humanitarian uh, enterprise, but it really was a key uh, spark for what uh, later became the Civil War. Well, absolutely. I mean, the number of fugitives who escaped, there were four million slaves in 1860. So even though maybe a thousand a year escaped from the whole South, I'm talking about, uh, in the 30 years before the Civil War, that's not destroying the system of slavery. Um, but this issue of fugitive slaves became a major catalyst of the sectional conflict. Remember, it's in the Constitution 
that Southerners have a right to get their fugitive slaves back. And then in 1850, uh, the federal government passes this very severe law where federal troops, federal marshals, federal judges are, you know, invoked in order to get fugitive slaves back from the North. But this just leads to resistance in the North. And so in the 1850s, the South is more and more alarmed about the growing uh, number of fugitives and the growing efforts in the North really to violate. I mean, this is a good example of civil disobedience. There's a long tradition of that in American history. What do you do when confronted with an unjust law? They, more and more people in the North are willing to violate the law to assist fugitive slaves on a humanitarian basis. But that then becomes a major political issue between North and South. Uh, you know, we were just in Selma for mm -hmm. the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. And um, the next morning, we went over to the um, first White House of the Confederacy, where right. Jefferson Davis lived. But in Selma, of course, we— what, upwards of 70,000 people marched over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, right. named for a Confederate a, general. And a Klansman, right. Uh, former head of the Al Grand, Dra Grand Dragon of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan and a U.S. senator. Mm -hmm. um, a man dressed as a Confederate soldier in Jefferson Davis's house who was taking people around, I asked him about the issue of slavery. He said, oh, oh, slavery was on its way out. That was not the issue right. here. It was all about states' rights. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, the problem is that if you look at the fugitive slave law, that was probably the most extreme example of federal of the federal government intervening in the states and overriding state laws, local laws, local procedures. It invalidated all sorts of laws in the North, let's say, trying to give a jury trial to an escaped slave. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, no, the South did not believe in states' rights. It believed in slavery. States' rights was a major defense of slavery because as a way of preventing northern interference. But when it came to using the federal government to protect and, def and defend slavery, they were perfectly happy to do that. Um, no, and slavery was not dying out. It was definitely not dying out. Slavery was growing. It was expanding. It was wealthy. There was no peaceful scenario at hand in 1860-61 for the abolition of slavery. And, of course, the enormous dependence of uh, a lot of the industry and commerce of the North on slavery. Well, you... New York City was a perfect <laughs> example of that. You know, as a, New York City was like a little microcosm of the national conflict. You had this Underground Railroad, you had a militant free black community, and yet you also had merchants, bankers, insurance companies, shipbuilders, all of whose economic livelihood was tied into the South. So New York had a very—they they had the Underground Railroad. They also had a group of merchants, the Union Safety Committee, which was devoted to capturing and sending back fugitive slaves, both of them operating at the same time. So the city just exemplified this national division. And explain why it was called the Underground Railroad. <laughs> Nobody knows uh, exactly where that term originated. I guess underground suggests, you know, uh, secret or private or something like that. Nobody knows where that term came from. But certainly by the 1840s, it was in very widespread use just to, for people who were helping fugitive slaves. But we should not think of it like literally like a railroad. Sometimes people think, oh, there were these set routes and fixed stations. No, it wasn't like that. It was much more haphazard. It was much more ad hoc. There were local groups in different places that communicated with each other, but it wasn't a highly organized system. Would you describe it as cells? Oh, you might call it a cells, right. And they rose and fell over time. The Philadelphia Vigilance Committee went out of existence for several years because they just didn't have any money. So it wasn't, you know, sometimes people think this is like a real railroad, but it, it was a lot more um, disorganized than that. But what's amazing is 
that it did help many fugitive slaves get to freedom in the North and Canada. And did you find uh, much differences in terms of strategies and tactics among the, the organizers or the people who were involved in the, well, in the movement? Well, you know, the, the abolitionist movement, like, unfortunately, some other radical movements, was always fighting among itself. In 1840, it split into these two wings. The, it's too complicated to go into the Garrison Wing and the Lewis Tappan Wing. That's why you had two outposts of the Underground Railroad in New York City. By the way, they were around the corner from each other, way downtown. They kind of were rivals, but they also cooperated sometime. But, um, yeah, there were differences in tactics. But, you know, even the people deeply involved in the Underground Railroad were also overground at the same time. They were publishing newspapers. They were holding conventions. They were, you know, uh, sending petitions around. The people operated both legally and, you might say, sub rosa uh, at the same time. And this idea, and you referenced it earlier, that the Underground Railroad was whites helping blacks. You get that in a lot of the early literature, particularly the reminiscences of white abolitionists well after the Civil War. You get this picture of, you know, courageous white people, which is true, they were courageous, sort of assisting helpless black people. That's really not right. First of all, to escape from slavery was a courageous act, and it was very, very difficult to do. And the record of fugitives is full of these stories of people's ingenuity and courage and good luck. It took also to just get out, because a lot of people were captured who tried to escape. And it wasn't just running through the forest. It, no. By the 1850s, they're on trains, they're on boats, they're in carriages. They, they're using whatever method they can uh, to get out. But uh, it was—and it, it, then most of the people helping them in the North were free black black people, uh, free blacks in New York City, in um, Philadelphia. If you're escaping in the South, you're most likely to be helped by other slaves or free blacks, like in Maryland, where there were quite a few of them. But there were plenty of white people, too. As I said, it was interracial. But it wasn't just whites helping blacks. It was much more complicated than that. You don't need a ticket to the secret password. Friend of friends, all aboard. Later in life, they called her Moses. Should save the freedom, I suppose. This underground railroad, Harriet Tubman, free 300 slaves. Ain't that something? Boston, New York, Montreal, Albany, and Rochester, Toledo, Detroit, Port Huron, Chicago, and Davenport. Fascinating study out uh, about the Nazis. Now, uh, how much of an effect did they have throughout history? in Germany, okay? So not just the effect they had at the time, but how much did that affect us through the generations? So for that, let's go to the Associated Press again. Researchers from the United States and Switzerland examined surveys conducted in 1996 and 2006 that asked respondents about a range of issues, including their opinion of Jews. The polls known as the German General Social Survey reflected the views of 5,300 people from 264 towns and cities across Germany allowing the researchers to examine differences according to age, gender, and location. Okay, so this is a significant study, covered obviously a lot of cities and towns and a lot of folks. What did we learn from this study? By focusing on those respondents who expressed consistently negative views of Jews in a number of questions, the researchers found that those born in the 1930s 
held the most extreme anti-Semitic opinions, even 50 years after the end of Nazi rule. Isn't that amazing and depressing? Turns out that once you indoctrinate kids to think a certain way, they think that way for a long, long time. Now look, I suppose the upside is if you indoctrinate them with positive thoughts, that that will also last a long time. But for now, this is the study we have in front of us. And boy, did they put poison in their minds. And 50 years later, that poison is still there. Amazing. They explain here, the study's author, the extent to which Nazi schooling work depended crucially on whether the overall environment where children grew up was already a bit anti-Semitic. Okay, so it's not just a simple formula of indoctrination. The culture had to already be ripe for it. Okay, and when you have that, and then you do the indoctrination, it lasts for a long, long time. Now, obviously, this isn't, and there's one other amazing part. The generation before them, not as anti-Semitic. The generation after them, clearly not as anti-Semitic in Germany. But that generation, in the areas where it was ripe for anti-Semitism, when you added their propaganda in, they had anti-Semitism that lasted for 50 years and beyond. Okay, So now, of course, this doesn't just apply to Germany. I mean, look at what we have here in the United States. There are certain areas in the U.S. where 50 years ago we had a society that was clearly racist. Water fountains for white people, for colored people. You try to cross the wrong bridge, you're going to get a baton upside the head. You're going to try to sit at the wrong diner, you're going to get hot coffee thrown in your face. You're going to have uh, burning crosses in your yard. Now, that culture wasn't from ancient history. Those, some of those folks are still alive today. A lot of those folks are still alive today. Now, if that indoctrination in that culture persisted in Germany for 50 years, do you think it might have also persisted here? So, now, more from the study, more from the authors. Uh, the study's lead author says, it tells you that indoctrination can work. It can last to a surprising extent, but the way that it works has to be compatible to something people already believe. Fortunately, here in the South and in a lot of parts of the country, uh, people also believed in racism already before the indoctrination came in. Now, um, the Associated Press finally says uh, about how they indoctrinated the kids and the sick things that they did. They said they gave students projects that included scouring church records for the names of Jewish families that had recently converted to Christianity. These were later used to draw up lists of Jews for deportation to concentration camps, making students unwitting accomplices in the Holocaust. Reading that turns my stomach, man. I mean, the depravity of human beings sometimes is untold and unfathomable. And understand this happened, and understand that it was not limited to one place and one time. Unfortunately, it still haunts us to this day. That's the reality. Better that you know it than you don't. So I appreciate that they did this study. And armed with this knowledge, I hope that we can fight back against this discrimination and all others in all places across the world.
In the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, when Americans were struggling to understand the long-term ongoing violence between Sunnis and Shia, historians pointed out that it took the U.S. a hundred years after the Civil War to move to repair the divide with civil rights legislation. And after the slaughter at the AME Church in Charleston, it's obvious that there's more to do. But our next guest says racial tensions have never been repaired, never even been addressed. Brian Stevenson recently launched that initiative to mark where nearly 4,000 lynchings took place in the U.S. He asks, why is it in Germany you can't go 100 yards without appropriately seeing a marker where Jewish families were taken to their death? In the South, you can't walk 100 yards without seeing a monument to men who defended slavery. Brian is founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. They also represent people claiming racial injustice in the legal system. He's at Troy Public Radio in Montgomery, Alabama. Brian, thanks for joining us. Happy to be with you. Well, lots to chew on here. Uh, You say the shooting in Charleston was a failure of the U.S. to deal with its history of racial injustice. Now, a lot of people might get that the Civil War did not end slavery, that the true history that blacks were then re-enslaved by Jim Crow laws that prohibited voting and good educations. But what do you mean when you say that while other countries became societies with slaves, the U.S. was a slave society? Well, I don't think most people get that we have never really confronted the legacy of slavery and the narrative of racial difference that was created to justify slavery. Mm. There was slavery all over the world. There was slavery in Africa. Uh, But in most countries, slavery was a transitional status. It was something that wasn't defined by race or ethnicity. In the United States, uh, people who were slave owners wanted to feel moral and just and Christian. And so they came up with this ideology of white supremacy. They basically concluded that black people are different. They're not as smart as other people. They're not as hardworking. They have these deficits. And we're doing something civil by enslaving them. And that narrative of racial difference was never confronted uh, by our country. And that's why I argue that slavery didn't really end in 1865. And we see it dramatically at the turn of the century when lynchings and racial violence and terror uh, was utilized to maintain this racial hierarchy, this racial subordination to reinforce uh, this narrative of racial difference. Well, and uh, you would go further and others would agree with you that it continued in order to sort of achieve that notion that uh, blacks were inferior. Uh, people made sure that they were. Lack of education, lack of jobs. It's one of the really uh, heartbreaking stories of our country. There was a recognition at the end of the Civil War that you had to give people the right to vote, give them the opportunities for education and employment, and that was just crushed, uh, taken away violently when Reconstruction collapsed. You know, the demographic geography of this country was shaped by terrorism. Uh, You have African Americans in Boston and Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Los Angeles, Oakland, and very few people realized that the African Americans in these cities did not come there as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities. They came as refugees and exiles from terror. At the beginning of the 20th century, 90% of the African-American population lived in the Deep South. Over the next 30 years, the Great Migration, millions fled, and they fled terror. And even as we got into the civil rights era, I think we did a really poor job of confronting the damage done by decades of segregation. I get a little frustrated, actually, when I hear people doing all of the celebratory things we do now 
to mark the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington or the Civil Rights Act. I mean, the truth is, is that for decades in this country, African Americans were humiliated every day. They were burdened, they were badgered, they were belittled. And you're not going to recover from something extended like that by just simply signing a law. So I'm going to jump in because, as you well know, Brian, I can almost hear the howls of protest from the whites who consider themselves liberal and caring, who said, wait, I marched with blacks. I scorned the Jim Crow laws of the South. I did not participate in this. Well, we all participated in it. And it's not to minimize the heroic struggle we made to overcome these laws, but the laws were just one part The real heart of the problem was the narrative of racial difference. It was the way we see people of color. It's the presumption of dangerousness and guilt that got assigned to people of color. And that presumption of dangerousness and guilt still lives today. It's the reason why young people are protesting on the streets after unarmed black men have been shot. And no one can just sort of isolate themselves and say, but I did one good thing and therefore am not culpable for this. We are all culpable. That doesn't mean that we should just beat ourselves up. It just means we have to commit ourselves uh, to truth and reconciliation, to something transitional. Well, let me ask you about that. What would you want? You say truth and reconciliation. And by the way, um, people might also say in response to what you're saying, that's all in the past. That's ancient history. We have to move forward. But after last week, we may not hear that as much. And we saw movement in the South that you would not have seen previous to last week of calls for the Confederate flag to be taken down. When you say reconciliation, what are you talking about? Because I want to play you something. You say we have to talk about this. But recently, President Obama, at that eulogy he gave for Pastor Clementa Pinckney, who was killed at the AME church, he said we talk too much. Let's listen. None of us can or should expect a transformation in race relations overnight. Every time something like this happens, somebody says we... We have to have a conversation about race. We talk a lot about race. So, Brian Stevenson, we talk a lot about race. Your thoughts? I don't think we talk uh, a lot about race. I think we talk around race a lot. I'm not interested in just talking. I'm interested in transformation. Look, I live in a state where Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday, where Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. We do not have Martin Luther King Day in Alabama. We have Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. You make a very state- provocative comment in that light. You say, can anyone imagine having an Osama bin Laden birthday? Really? Well, I, mean, well, I think, you know, as an African-American whose great-grandparents were enslaved, uh, the architects and defenders of slavery are not heroes. I don't think we should at, relate to the history of slavery and racial oppression with pride. Lynching was terrorism. And we can't relate to the architects and defenders of lynching as if they were heroes. And so, yes, I think in most parts of the world, when someone tries to destroy a country, when someone does something abusive, we don't celebrate them. And in Germany, there is a history of horrific misconduct. And no one would think it's appropriate to celebrate Adolf Hitler's birthday. We don't romanticize the architects of the Holocaust. Slavery and terrorism has no place of honor in our history. And we're not going to get where we're trying to go until we reverse that. 
till we talk more honestly about what that means. We've got 59 markers and monuments to the Confederacy in my hometown of, of Montgomery, and they're a word about slavery. That's the other part of it that's so provocative. And obviously that's part of your mission to, to mark the places where there was this history of slavery, where slaves came and went in the country and places where lynching took place. But what else does this look like? What else in your mind does this conversation, this addressing of race, look like? I think it's what transitional justice looks like in many parts of the world. It's creating a space for us to deal mournfully with the past, uh, those things that should be mourned, to express our shame, our regret. You mean like physical places? What, what? You know, I do think what's happened in Germany is a good model. I mean, if you go to Germany, you are forced to see the places where Jewish families were abducted. They want you to go uh, to the concentration camps and reflect soberly on that history. And that gives you a relationship, a way of coping with that history that's designed to protect those dynamics from ever manifesting themselves again, but also gives the nation a way forward. You know, I think we've got a generation of people who are white in this country who were born into households where they were taught, either directly or indirectly, that they're better than other people because they're white. And that's a terrible thing. And I want those communities to be liberated from the burden of racial bias. We are all compromised by this, not just people of color. Brian Stevenson, you talk about the horrors, the terrorism of slavery and lynching. But it's also the, uh, as you've said, everyday insults. Could you just share your story as a lawyer? Yeah, yeah, I think one of the things that, I mean, people say, oh, you're talking about the past. No, this is really alive today, these presumptions of dangerousness and guilt, the way in which we look at each other, the implicit bias we all carry around. I was uh, doing a case in the Midwest uh, just a couple of years ago, and I was in a courtroom uh, doing a hearing for the first time. I had my suit on. I had my shirt and tie on. I was at defense counsel's table, and the judge walked in, and he saw me sitting there, and he said, hey, 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 you get back out there in the hallway. I don't want any defendant sitting in my courtroom without their lawyers. You wait out there until your lawyer gets here. And I stood up and I said, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Uh, My name is Brian Stevenson. I am the attorney. And the judge started laughing. And the prosecutor started laughing. And I made myself laugh because I didn't want to disadvantage my client. Uh, The client came in, the young white man I was representing. And we did the hearing. But afterward, I was thinking, what is it Uh, that when this judge sees a middle-aged black man in a suit and tie at counsel's table, it doesn't occur to him that that's a lawyer. What that is, is this implicit bias, this narrative of racial difference, this presumption that complicates our relationships. And until we deal with it, until we acknowledge it, until we proactively go after it, We're not going to make progress. The status of women in society has changed radically over the last 50 years. We've learned things uh, that are are not appropriate. We've learned how to respect in some spaces the idea uh, that women can be attorneys and doctors. We still have a long way to go, but we've done it by confronting it. And we need to do the same thing when it comes to race. And it's quite tragic the way this plays out in the lives of so many people.
I try not to do media criticism by counterfactual, but I do believe that if a young black man had gone into a white church and murdered nine people and said that it was because they were white and that he hoped to spark a race war, you know, I, I sort of believe that we would still be talking about the ideas that that killer had pointed to as his motivation and how we should address those ideas as a society. I wonder, do you think that we missed socially an opportunity that the Charleston murders offered? What happened there? Yeah, look, I think that there is a form of white privilege when it comes to killers like Dylan Roof, right, the white shooter in Charleston. I would say this is definitely the case with the uh, militia folks who occupied the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, right? It doesn't seem like their crimes are treated with the severity or level that they would if we were to say that those folks that were holed up in Burns, Oregon, for example, were Muslim, right, or African-American. We would be having a much different conversation. There are other small things related to um, white supremacist killers and other radical right killers that are odd as well. We had the Planned Parenthood shooting, Robert Deere, and the Dylan Roof case, where law enforcement didn't drag those people out in handcuffs or shoot into these places. What they did is, in both cases, they took the two of them out for hamburgers after the crimes. I just don't think that would happen if it was a person of color. And it's hard for people to see those disparities and not uh, want to minimally have a conversation that names them, you know, that doesn't sort of take in each incident as a new occurrence and unique and special, but that says, you know, we can recognize a pattern of, of actions here. Well, let me move you in a way from media. At an event last fall that I saw on C-SPAN, you were very patiently and persistently trying to ask uh, an assistant attorney general for national security how the government was preparing to address the expected increase in white supremacist violence along with 2040 and, and whites becoming a statistical minority. His responses kept seeming to go back to examples about Islamic extremists, you know, we know that media focus much more on Islamist violence than domestic right-wing violence. But I wonder if in general you feel that the government's anti-terrorism mechanisms, are they pointed in the right direction, no pun intended? Sure. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is that we have just about as many people tragically have been killed in the United States, actually it's slightly more, by white supremacist or anti-government motivated people, right, domestic terrorists, as by Islamic extremists. And we have been hypercritical of both the Bush administration and then the Obama administration for only focusing on Islamic terrorism. And, you know, we've, we've been basically on a campaign since uh, 2009 to pressure the federal government to take both types of terrorism seriously, right? It's not an issue of, you know, do one or the other. It's an issue of and. And that's kind of what I was saying to Assistant Attorney uh, John Carlin in that event that you're talking about. The federal government has gotten much better about the distribution of resources to both types of, suprem you know, both types of uh, terrorism, but it took a long time to make them right that ship. And it's kind of astounding. And I would say once again, it's kind of a weird form of, of white privilege or perhaps denial on the majority. It's like it's much easier to think, oh, that terrible person from a foreign land came here and did something, right? It's not made of America. We didn't create it. And then this reluctance to admit that, you know, white supremacy is part of our history. It is native to us. 
and it creates massive violence. And that there's a hard, it seems to be very hard for people to accept that, both in the federal government and in general. Media coverage sometimes reflects this, I think. Well, the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center is being featured now in a series called Hate in America, which debuted February 29th on Investigation Discovery. And folks can see, I think, whole episodes even at some point online at investigationdiscovery.com. Tell us about that series and what you hope folks may take away from it. Sure. Well, um, Discovery has done uh, a three-hour-long segments looking at the issues basically around hate in America, its nature, its relationship to domestic terrorism, the issue of severe hate crimes. They're using the Southern Poverty Law Center as a guide to some of, of that work, and they, they talk to victims of this kind of violence and the, and the just horrific pain that they go through, whether the shooting was, you know, April 2014 in Jewish Community Center in Kansas or it was Charleston this past summer. And the point that they're trying to make, and I think they do a very nice job of it, is we have got to get real about the fact that hate crimes, hate violence, hate-motivated terrorism is a serious problem in this country. And we need to talk about it. And it's something that, you know, in general, we've been shying away from. Even though these incidents keep coming and coming and coming, you know, our research shows that we've had a lone wolf terrorist attack every 34 days in the United States for the last few years. That's serious. Well, one of the cases that is referred to in the series is, is um, has been referred to as the last lynching in America. And I would be very interested to hear people guess what year they think the last lynching uh, in America took place. Um, I mean, uh, I, I think even when media talk about this, there is an insistence that stra- these strains of thought, these ideas are relics, you know, that they are historical, and we don't want to bring them into the present day. The, the last lynching, of course, that was 1981. You can tell us about that, but also just tell us about the importance of what's the difference between talking about white supremacy in our history and talking about white supremacy in our present. Well, that's right. Michael Donald was lynched in Mobile in 81 on a public street by Klansmen, right? Most people would think that the last lynching maybe happened in the 60s or something. They would have no idea, or maybe even further back in history. But the, the fact of the matter is that the kinds of hate crimes that occurred, like the one in Charleston this summer, that did not involve a noose, right? But it's the same as a lynching. The people who were praying in that church were killed simply because they were black by someone who was an avid reader of white supremacist websites and came to believe that propaganda, propaganda that is ancient in our country, in particular about the idea that somehow black men are more criminal than whites. And sucking those ideas in led to that violence. So although a gun was used by Dylan Roof in Charleston, that kind of violence, just like the horror that Michael Donald went through, is happening all the time. And we've got to address it. Well, let me just ask you, finally, um, part of the reason that we see reticence, I think, on the part of media to explore the connections and to take white supremacy seriously as a body of ideas, as an ideology that has influence, has to do with how far up it goes and how and how deep the tendrils of it go. In particular, in the case of Dylan Roof and Charleston, Dylan Roof acknowledged that he had had his life changed by discovering the website of something called the Council of Conservative Citizens. And their statement 
in the wake of the Charleston killings, I thought was very eerie, and it always struck me that media did not do very much with it. The Council of Conservative Citizens, who Roof had cited as kind of a motivational force, said that while they unequivocally condemned his actions, quote, they do not detract in the slightest from the legitimacy of some of the positions he has expressed. Ignoring legitimate grievances is dangerous, close quote. That seems to me something to be taken extremely seriously. Absolutely. It, well, first of all, it, it was enough for their propaganda to radicalize Dylan Roof. Secondly, the Council of Conservative Citizens, which is a hate group today, exists today, had politicians attending their meetings on a regular basis well into the 2000s. So there's that. I mean, this is not like some disconnected little group. And perhaps more importantly, when we're talking about the history of the United States, the Council of Conservative Citizens was built on the mailing lists of the white citizens' councils, the segregationist um, organizations that existed all across the South during uh, the 60s and the 50s. So we've got it directly to our past. We have a killer who is motivated by propaganda that is ancient, actually, in American history and constantly pushed by white supremacists, and that killing happened this past summer. So you see that this through line of domestic terrorism related to white supremacist thinking is one that is still alive and well in the United States. But while we're calling on media and everyone to take it seriously, that doesn't mean to uh, to, to lack hope about it. And I understand that through this Hate in America series, but also through the work you do. I mean, you couldn't do it if you didn't see it as something that was, you know, fighting toward the light, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, American history, you know, also shows us that the world has, in general, become less racist by a large amount since the 1960s, right? We still have a lot of racial issues to deal with, but 40 million Amer- white Americans voted for an African-American for president, for example. You know, what these people fundamentally represent is a backlash to a future that will be multicultural, multi-ethnic, diverse, and so on. So, you know, in general, I think of this as you kind of have to fight back the backlash, and terrible things can come from that. But for the most part, the United States is, you know, probably in the best place it's ever been in terms of, you know, kind of racial um, relationships. Who is the free, yes, and who is the brave? It's hard to tell by the way we behave. Places the power I'm not welcome in. Curse for life by the black of my skin. I want to know why this is so. Why not contributed as a nation grow? An indivisible, I share belief. Issues of race brings only grief. Come before you, true to myself. Keeping my soul from high on the shelf. An equal life is the way to go. Otherwise, only hatred we have to show. So, bigotry, don't you talk it to me. Take it out, joy, way out in the sea. Eric Foner is DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University here in New York. He's one of this country's most prominent historians and the foremost expert on the Civil War and Reconstruction eras. He's the author of more than 20 books, including classics such as Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, The Ideology of the Republican Party Before the Civil War, Nothing But Freedom, Emancipation and Its Legacy, and Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. 1863 to 77. His most recent book is Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History 
of the Underground Railroad. I'm very glad to welcome Eric Fona back to the program. Hi, Eric. Nice to see you, Laura. Good to see you, too. So, I mean, just in very broad strokes, how do you, as a historian, approach the election season? I think I've seen all this before. Uh, it, it does seem like there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, sometimes people who don't have a long sense of history wonder whether people have denounced each other vitriolically, as we have seen a lot this campaign season. Yeah. Yes, they did in the past. I mean, you should see what they said about George Washington <laughs> in the 1790s or Abraham Lincoln. Um, uh, the intensity on some of the some of what seemed to be the more r retrograde ideas that we've heard, like, you know, kicking millions of immigrants out of the country, things like that, or the anti-Muslim sentiments. Uh, there are parallels for that. We had a party called the Know Nothings back in the 1850s, which wanted to cut off immigration, keep Irish out, very anti-Catholic. What happened to them? I want some good news. Uh, they kind of faded away, although that impulse of hostility to those who are different yeah. and hostility to newcomers who seem to be different uh, has surfaced many times in American history. It's not just in the last year. Um, so yes, of course, today it's a little different than in the past. The media, the, the social media, the internet, everything, everything anyone says is broadcast around the world immediately. So there's no uh, hiatus, there's no ability to take back what you said. And the other big thrust of this election and a lot of elections is who's going to get things done, to which I always say, what things? Well, um, yes, it, it, getting, it be, the ability to get things done is not necessarily that great a virtue if you have no idea what you're trying to do. <laughs> And um, I, um, you know, I tend to, uh, there's a, one of my famous quote, favorite quotes I give to my students about all this is from Max Weber, a famous essay of his, Politics as Vocation, where he said, what is possible would never be achieved if some people didn't ask for the impossible. Mm. The people who demand the impossible don't get it done, but they make the possible possible. They change the discourse. They put the issues on the national agenda. Uh, the abolitionists, for example, they didn't abolish slavery, but without them, slavery would never have been abolished. No, there weren't that many abolitionists. No, in like the there were not that many, right? and they were pretty much despised in most uh, communities in the North, not to mention the South, for most of the period before the Civil War. And, and yet, yet they, they kept bringing forward those proposals, they those They put bills. those issues, they changed the discourse which is a much more powerful thing to do than to get a single piece of legislation passed or something like so that. So when Hillary Clinton, as she did so much during primary season, goes after Bernie Sanders and says, you know, he may have ideas I like, but he's never going to get them done, what should be his comeback? What should well, have been his I think uh, Bernie should say, or others who know history would say, look, uh, things get done because of a combination of social movements and political leaders. You know, what was it, eight years ago, there was a controversy because uh, Bill Clinton, when Hillary was running against Obama in the primary, said, well, you know, Lyndon Johnson got the civil rights movement going, you know, and people said, well, wait a minute, what about all those people in the streets? It wasn't just Lyndon Johnson who did it all by himself. So, yeah, you can have a president who gets things done, but without ferment in the streets for change, they're not going to know what ought to be done. So I'm hearing a message here in a sense to those who are involved in social movements that may feel very small to them um, or separate from the national discourse. I mean, Black Lives Matter, for example, yeah. I'd love to get your feedback. Yeah. The expectation is that they will change national politics, have a national profile, be well, a national they, you organization know, they, they did. overnight. Black Lives Matter is very important. It's still going on. It reminds me, the very 
way they put the, the, the very idea of Black Lives Matter actually resonates back in American history. It resonates back to Martin Luther King's, the, you know, the, the Memphis sanitation strike where King was killed, you know, where the, the signs they, wrote, they wore were, I am a man. Right. They didn't say, give me 15% pay raise. They said, I am a man. We want dignity. We want respect. We want to be re- our humanity be recognized. Or go back 100 years or more before that to the abolitionist movement and their major kind of little, uh, uh, um, you know, insignia or a brand almost was a kneeling slave with words around him saying, am I not a man and a brother? Mm-hmm. In other words, they were demanding, recognize the humanity of the slave. Mm-hmm. Then you will turn against slavery. And Black Lives Matter is saying the same thing in a sense. Recognize the equal humanity of African-American people and then the police will not operate in the way they have, you know, in, our, in much of our history and even into today. So it's doing work no matter the size of the political organization. You know, or it has candidates. affected policing in many, many parts yeah. of the country today. Uh, not that it's perfect by any means, but I think... I think because of Black Lives Matter, because of the light they have shown on this problem, because, unfortunately, of a series of deaths, unnecessary deaths of people, um, I think that cities, mayors, police chiefs are much more cognizant now Mm -hmm. of the use of force, the trigger happiness of what seems to be quite common among police. And um, I think, you know, that's a significant change. It would not have happened if these people had not been out in the streets. One of the things that we're seeing also on campuses, but not just there, is a discussion about monuments. Yes. About, you know, tributes to Confederate leaders or right. slave owners. Um, that that discussion and the decision to, to bring down the Confederate flag in lots of places, does that lead you to think we're in a different place when it comes to the way we're dealing with Well, you know, on the one hand, there are people who say, hey, this is just symbolism, man. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean a thing. They took down the Confederate flag in South Carolina, which they should have. It should not be flying in a public space, which is supposed to represent the entire state. Uh, And yet, you know, they won't extend Medicaid. And there are deep racial inequalities still in South Carolina, obviously. So it's symbolic. Symbolism is important. But on the other hand, you can't uh, have it for dinner, you know. And uh, So should you bring down the monuments on the campuses? Uh, it depends. They should in some cases. Uh, right. You know, look, I'm, in my campus, Columbia, luckily, was only built around 1900, the new campus, so we don't have any monuments of slave owners <laughs> or anything. Uh, I would, you know, it's not. I don't have a dog in this fight in a sense, but I would be in favor of changing the name, let's say, of Calhoun College at Yale. Why should Yale have a college named after the number one propagandist in the United States for slavery and racial inferiority before the Civil War? This would be like having a college named after Goebbels, the (laughs) propagandist of the Nazis. I don't think they have too many of them in Germany anymore. Um, Taking down monuments, you know, basically my approach on that is actually put up more monuments. Right. Look around the South. There are thousands of statues of Confederate generals and Confederate this, that, and the other thing. How many statues do you think there are of, let's say, black Reconstruction leaders? Not very many. Um, But that's part of Southern history, too. The The point is monuments, flags, these are not just history. They are expressions of power. Who has the power to shape the public mm. representation of history. And if you look at the monument, the public monuments in the South, and in fact in the whole country, um, they show you that 
black people have never had yeah. much power in this country because well, there's not a heck of a lot of monuments to their contributions to our society. Brian Stevenson was on this program talking about his lynching project um, uh -huh. to have not monuments erected at lynching sites. They should to certainly tell that do other that to mark story. that history. Absolutely. To go back to that period of Reconstruction, what was the what was the idea? Uh, when it comes to power and how power would be righted and, and how well, did that get Well, yeah, I right? mean, Reconstruction is a remarkable moment in our history. It's a, as Du Bois pointed out long ago in his great book, Black Reconstruction in America, it's a moment in the history of democracy. Not, it's not just a question of African-American history. It's the history of democracy. Well, you always say that. You're not an African-American historian. In the, yeah, in the United States and the world. Now, you don't have moments very often like that the end of the American Civil War, where an entire system is destroyed. Yeah. Slavery was a system of power, political power, economic power, social power, racial power. So the question of who's going to exercise power now is right on the front burner in 1865 and through Reconstruction. And it's not that black people suddenly took over all the power, but they gained a, a foothold in power. They gained the right to vote. They gained the right to hold office for the first time in American history, really, in any significant numbers. They held offices. They passed legislation. They helped to draft constitutions. To white people in a society that had been based on slavery for 250 years, this was intolerable. It was impossible to accept. And the you know, that power was met by other kinds mm. of power, particularly the power of terrorism, which we are very attuned to today, but certainly the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that, we had a lot of homegrown terrorism in our country in the Reconstruction period. And the power of the federal government, I mean, ultimately, after the Civil War, it's the federal government where power resides, and they imposed Reconstruction, but then later retreated from it. Mm. And once that happened, the power fell apart in the South. So yes, Reconstruction, among other things, is a very striking example of shifts of power and how and clashes of power uh, in the aftermath of this remarkable revolution of the destruction of slavery. Now, one of the things that was so re so revolutionary and remarkable was the fa was the decision not to compensate the slave owners. Right. But there was not the decision to compensate the slaves, the enslaved people. Right. That right. continues to resonate today. Well, it does, of course, and. Um, you know, the, same, the famous uh, phrase, 40 acres and a mule, the African-Americans demanded land. Or, or One historian once wrote, I think this is true, the political revolution went forward, but the right. economic revolution was much more, you know, was sort of stymied. Um, and yes, Lincoln, uh, although Lincoln actually <laughs> did favor giving some compensation mm -hmm. to the former s slave owners, Congress, the cabinet, they all rejected that. Um, the liquidation of that immense amount of property. Slaves were human beings, but they also were property, and they represented by far the largest concentration of property in the country, and that was just liquidated. Mm. No compensation, no payment, nothing. That's a pretty radical act. Mm. Um, almost all the other emancipations in the Western Hemisphere, the owners got compensation. Not here. France and Haiti. Haiti, even Haiti, had to pay reparations to France for over a hundred years, you know? Um, but uh, not here. So that is uh, that was a significant shift. So, but what happened then to that demand? I mean, you hear it discussed. Tanahisi Coates' article about reparations got the kind of right. attention that it did because I think it's still such a potent demand. But what has happened to our to the connection between political power and economic power? Well, that's where Reconstruction is such a critical point, also, because you you might almost say that that's where those things went separated. Mm. That political equality went down one road, but 
economic equality did not. And so, the, in other words, the country adopted the idea that you can have political equality without economic mm. equality. But W. Du Bois, people like that, kept on talking about oh, yeah. cooperation. Oh, the labor movement certain... rejected that. The progressive movement insisted on what they called economic security, that you couldn't really have a democratic system with vast inequalities and many people lacking any economic security. FDR talked about this. That idea that you need an economic base. I mean, Roosevelt said at one point, you know, the the, using a word we don't use very much, the necessitous man, that is the person who is needy, let's say, uh, is not free. It's not really free. You can have the right to vote. You're not a slave, but you're not free if you're economically dependent completely on someone else. Uh, so, yeah, Tanahishi Coates is right. This issue is out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only, my only question about this, the, the way reparations are sometimes discussed nowadays, now, Reconstruction was 150 years ago, obviously, and no one's given out 40 acres of, certainly in Manhattan, you're not getting 40 acres in a mule. Forget about the mule, you know. <laughs> but um, sometimes the discussion of reparations, not in his writings, but in a lot of people, tends to leave you with the impression that the problem was a problem of 150 mm. years ago. There are, racism is being uh, implemented as we speak. Right. Uh, the face of racism today is not, uh, a Klansman, really. It's not Bull Connor with his dogs. It's a banker in a three-piece suit at Wells Fargo Bank who is refusing to give, who is pushing blacks into subprime mortgages, which means they're going to lose their homes yeah. when whites don't. Um, you know, it's Prison. the governor of Michigan ignoring the fact that the largely black yeah. city of Flint is being poisoned by its own water supply so that the state can save a little bit of money. Um, so in other words, racism is, is part of our system even today. It is not just a question of reparations for something that happened in the past. We just heard clips featuring the Majority Report break down the myth of meritocracy. Democracy Now! interviewed historian Eric Foner about the history of the Underground Railroad. The Young Turks discussed the impact of racist Nazi propaganda on Germans and then compared it to the historical racism in the U.S. Here and Now spoke with Brian Stevenson about the legacy of slavery in this country and how it's still affecting us today. Counterspin talked with Heidi Byrick about the legacy of white supremacy and how it fuels hate crimes and right-wing domestic terrorism. And finally, we just heard Laura Flanders speaking with Eric Foner about how the racism of the past is influencing the election we're witnessing today. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Eric in Mobile. Uh, you talking about the uh, the need to have less or the, the good feeling that comes with having less uh, reminded me of something that happened a few years ago when I was active duty Army. I got stationed in Fort Campbell and moved up to Clarksville, Tennessee. Went and found a house to rent because my wife was going to move up there with me. And then uh, as like the day after I signed the lease, she got accepted into a, uh, a college uh, program, a, a master's degree that she has been really trying to get into back in Mobile. So um, I had this big house with just me. And, and so I didn't bother putting any furniture in the living room. Uh, I didn't bother buying a TV. Um, I just watched Hulu and Netflix on, uh, on my laptop. 
on a fold-out table in the kitchen. And I went and got a mattress. Didn't bother with a box springs or a frame or anything. Just threw a mattress on the floor. And uh, it basically just had my suitcase, had a couple of suitcases in the, uh, in the bedroom. Didn't bother getting a dresser or anything. And I lived like that for about uh, two and a half years. And then left Fort Campbell, got out of the Army, and, and now I'm living with my wife again in Mobile. But um, the funny thing about that was while I was out of town once, uh, my house was burglarized. And I can just imagine the look on that guy's face when he kicks in the back door into a living room with literally nothing in it. Walks into a bedroom with nothing in it but a couple of suitcases with some clothes and a bed, just a mattress. Goes into the kitchen with nothing but a fold-out table and some fold-out chairs. And then the, uh, the alarm system went off. So <laughs> I just, uh, just thought of that when you were talking about that. And then uh, as far as the, the, the feeling that comes along with, with giving... I amassed a, uh, a great deal of MREs, uh, the meals ready to eat when I was in the Army. Basically, they, they give you three of these every day, and there's no way you could ever eat three of them in a day. So I just keep about five or maybe seven of them in my trunk, and uh, there's a lot of homeless people in downtown Mobile. Every once in a while, I'll just I'll see one as I'm pulling into my parking lot, and I'll just grab an MRE for them and hand it to them as I'm walking by on the way to the office. And uh, the the impact of having been doing that for the last I don't know, nine months, I've given out probably, I don't know, 30, 30 MREs to, to various homeless people in, uh, in downtown Mobile has, uh, has brought me great joy. And, um, you know, we already give monthly to a couple of charities, but uh, there is definitely a lot of a lot of good feeling that, that comes with with giving and uh, you really can buy happiness. So I'll leave you with that. Uh, you're doing a great job. I've really enjoyed the last few episodes. Uh, keep up the great work. I'll talk to you later. Hi, Jay. It's Kirk in Las Vegas. I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to take a look at my video about what actually happened at the Nevada Democratic Convention back on May the 14th. It's interesting that the mass media, New York Times, Washington Post, again and again gets the story wrong, while me, a lowly delegate with an iPhone, can get an accurate representation of what happened. And it was nothing at all like reported in the national media. The Bernie delegates were nothing but polite and concise and nice. A little bit of frustration coming out, but I mean, the Bernie team even handed out flyers with instructions for the delegates and one of the things was to be nice to be cordial and then to see the metro the las vegas police brought in to protect people like roberta lang who's the chair of the democratic party and then to have roberta say oh i've received death threats talk about a party that was destined to go for one candidate when 64 of the bernie delegates were disqualified on my video, of course, you saw a little bit of the minority report from the credentials committee, but simply a miscarriage of what America should be by both the media, the mainstream media getting it wrong after wrong after wrong with only very, very limited retractions coming out. And then the establishment of the party determined that Hillary was going to win this Nevada convention no matter what. The convention also scheduled on the day of the University of Nevada Las Vegas graduation. 
simply an amazing situation. And I really believe at this point that many, many of the Bernie delegates are going to have a tough time holding their nose so tightly that they can vote for Hillary. And in my view at this point, if Donald Trump, the tragedy that would be, becomes the 45th president of the United States, that the fault will lie entirely with Hillary Clinton. People like Roberta Lang, the chairman of the Nevada Democratic Party, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, the chairman of the DNC. It will be the DNC's fault if Trump is elected. And if anyone would like to see the actual story, I know it's a couple of weeks late uh, from what did happen here in Las Vegas. Easy to find. You can just do a Google search for my last name, Clyatt, C-L-Y-A-T-T, and Nevada Convention. Or follow me or just check my tweets at Clyatt, at C-L-Y-A-T-T, and just scroll down and you'll see many, many uh, tweets relating to the convention. And I pretty much had a real-time play-by-play of what actually took place. And it's thankful, at least, that we do have things like Twitter and we do have the Internet. So people, when they search, can get the true story because clearly uh, networks, television networks and media organizations with deep pockets like the New York Times and the Washington Post are incapable of doing so. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, voting for the podcast awards is still going on right now through June 12th. So huge thanks to everyone who's already been voting and thanks to everyone who will get around to voting. There's no time like the present. Do it now. Go to podcastawards.com. Scroll down. The news and politics is down there. Click on best of the left. You put in your name and your email address. Submit. And then make sure to verify your vote with the email that they send you. Couldn't be simpler. And thank you again. Now, today, I want to talk about something that I was reminded of when I did the last episode's comments. Uh, Previously, I was talking about the importance of social movements, such as anti-racism or anti-sexism, in the context of the broader progressive movement, and why, therefore, we shouldn't try to bypass these kinds of issues, often derisively referred to as identity politics, so that we can move on to quote-unquote real issues, which, and the people are usually referring to economics like income inequality or the destructive nature of capitalism itself, that sort of thing. And this all got me thinking back to an aspect of social issues that I think a lot of people get wrong, and not that, not that they're even wrong, just that they could do it better, and, and that uh, I would love to see this corrected and for there to be a mass change in our discourse. So I had my moment of clarity on this topic when I read an article titled, I Find This Offensive, How Offense Discourse Traps Us Into in Action by Catherine Cross. And the basic premise is that when very well-meaning people attempt to object to racist, sexist, homophobic, transmisogynistic, or any other similar kind of comment, they very often give as a reason for their objection that what was said was offensive. And while this is almost certainly going to be true in most cases, uh, you know, first of all, it's subjective, which is a little iffy, But secondly, it's just not nearly the biggest reason to object to such comments. And also, saying that you find something offensive 
almost inevitably leads to an utterly useless debate regarding free speech and the fact that no one has a right to not be offended, which is true, and you just don't want to go down that path. And you've probably either been in a conversation like that or at least witnessed one, maybe online, maybe off. You know, the most famous ones usually involve comedians fighting with their critics, that sort of thing. Okay, so if if people just being offended isn't the biggest problem with racist or sexist comments uh, or even comments that downplay the severity of rape, which is another hot topic comedians like to uh, fight about with feminists, that sort of thing, you know, then, then what, what's the big problem? The bigger problem is that racism, sexism, etc. are all social norms. They're part of our culture. And as such, we have the potential to change those norms over time. You know, we were listening to basically the history of racism in this country. Today, slavery clearly used to be a social norm, and now it's not. Things change. But every degrading comment against a group of people based on their race, gender, sexual orientation, or anything else helps perpetuate the current status quo of discrimination. And for a lot of people, our current status quo can be pretty terrible. So trans people, you know, they're the the new kids on the block who are finally getting a little bit of the attention they deserve. Uh, You know, they're at a very high risk of being attacked. Uh, They're at risk of just being in poverty due to discriminatory hiring practices. Uh, All of this can cause depression and their suicide rates are through the roof compared to, you know, the rest of the population. So when someone makes an offensive comment about trans people, that comment's going to do a lot more than just offend someone. It's actually helping to prop up more broadly in society those discriminatory, biased ideas that lead to all of the problems I just listed. And that is what we mean when we refer to oppression. Living in a world where you're more likely to be harmed by another person because something about you makes that person want to target you is oppressive, just knowing that that's a possibility. Living in a world where you're more likely to be hassled and possibly killed by the police because of the color of your skin is oppressive, because every day you know that that could happen. Even smaller things, like not being taken seriously by your boss because of your gender, is, in its own way, oppressive. It's something that nags on you all the time. So when someone says something that's propping up stereotypes or dehumanizing an an entire group of people, what they're saying may very well be offensive, but I don't think that's what you should say when you call them out on it. Instead, tell them that they are contributing to, even if only accidentally, they're contributing to systems that cause real harm to real people, and that goes far beyond hurt feelings. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. If you want to read that article I referred to, again, it's called I Find This Offensive, How Offense Discourse Traps Us Into Inaction, and it's on feministing.com. I'll also link that in the show notes. And if you want to see the video that voicemailer Kirk referred to that he took at the Nevada Convention, that will also be linked up in the show notes of today's episode. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up 
with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past